Welcome to the Data Bites podcast by Women in Data, where we give you your weekly bite-sized dose of career development advice, industry case studies, and career stories to help you excel in your data career. Marcia Drake is the Deputy of Data Acquisition and Data Management at the State of Washington Healthcare Authority and has over 20 years experience working in a variety of public service roles. In today's episode, Marcia shares her inspirational story of how she turned her disadvantages into her advantages and how she takes a purpose-driven approach to data projects. Finally, we wrap up the conversation talking about the metaverse and her passion for women driving change in this space. Enjoy! Marcia, I have been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I know we met through Women in Data and had the opportunity to chat with you a little bit one-on-one and really wish I would have just recorded that conversation because it was so inspiring. It was like, okay, you have to come back and, and be on the podcast because you are such a positive change maker. And I just love your unique perspective on the world and the future of technology. So thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing with us your story and your thoughts. And I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Sadie. I am excited to be here. Great. So talking about your story, would love for you just to share your story of how you found yourself in this space today and what were some of those you know, pivotal moments? I think we all have that thing that we look back and in hindsight's always 2020, right? Where we look back on our <laughs> life and we're like, hey, that may not have been the best starting off, but that was such a pivotal moment. It's really enabled the way I think and, and work today. So can you share a little bit more about your story? Sure. So um, I think one of the things that struck me recently is uh, in women in data, first of all, there's not as many of us as you would think. And as I was kind of looking back at my own career, um, I thought, how the heck did I get here? <laughs> What's my, uh, you know, what actually set me up for this? Because I never went to school to become, uh, you know, a data specialist. That was not um, where I intended to go. But as I reflected on things, I started to see patterns that really set me up for um, this future career. So, you know, it all started, I was raised by teachers. So my parents were very much into education. And, you know, as a child, they they got me into music at age four, and I was writing music. And um, by about age eight, I was studying with a professor at the University of um, uh, at Pacific Lutheran University uh, for composition. And I was winning awards and yeah, doing quite a bit with piano and music. Um, and then also my parents got me into computer programming really early. My dad was uh, and, and my uncle were very much into computers. And so about age eight, I started programming in basic and I was learning how to write, you know, little video games and they're not video games like we think of them today, but they were fun little stories that you could, um, you know, make the computer ask you questions and that kind of thing. And um, a little bit of a, a WordStar, which it's an archaic program, but it was actually very sophisticated for the time. And um, that's one thing that, you know, when you think about the way that the brain functions with data, I realized, wow, as a child, uh, my brain was kind of being wired at that age. 
for for where I am today. So I'll get back to that. But um, yeah, my childhood, um, you know, my my dad was always doing science experiments in the backyard. You know, we were um, doing a lot with the community. Both of my parents were very um, active in the sense of public service. So that also was ingrained in me. Um, and I just learned how to ask questions of the world. So, um, you know, why, why does this happen? You know, what, what is your cause and effect? So some of that was just, yeah, programmed into me at an early age. When I hit uh, junior high and high school, however, um, I discovered I was horrible at math. I mean, really not good. And I had a series of um, male math teachers who basically told me, well, you know, girls can't do math, which didn't help matters much, kind of reinforced that. And uh, I struggled with algebra. I struggled, um, you know, with, with just about any math class that was thrown my direction. And um, I also struggled with, um, I would say, the classical piano. I could write my own music. But when it came to actually trying to be trained like a classical musician, I was really struggling. And when I graduated from high school, I went into music composition. So I went back to the same professor I had started with when I was eight and uh, started working with him, uh, signed up for the music major program. And it was there that the, the other professors who, um, were working with me on the clarinet, they had me sight read a piece one day. And instead of reading it from left to right, like you're supposed to, evidently I read everything from right to left, except I played it all perfectly. And when I got done, I didn't realize what I'd done. And I, I, I imagine I was probably a little bit exhausted, you know, just college students, you know, staying up late and, and all kinds of things. But that professor said, you realize you just played everything correctly, but you played it all from right to left. And at that point, uh, the music professors in the department confronted me and said, you know, we really want you to take a test to find out if you have this mere reversal dyslexia. And I did a little research and it would have cost me money I didn't have at the time. And I thought, well, I probably do have something, uh, you know, why do I need a certificate to prove it? Um, but at that point I really did get discouraged and I decided to switch my major to anthropology and I transferred schools, um, and, uh, yeah, really became interested in the behavioral side of, um, you know, what, what, uh, kind of questions there are in the world. And it was there that, um, I actually took my first statistics class as part of my anthropology requirements. And I was bound and determined to, um, to get a good grade out of this class because I knew how important it was for my major, for, for graduation. And I also knew my history was struggling with math. And so I was basically living outside of the professor's door, um, really um, trying to, to grasp what I was learning. And it was actually the... Um, the, the professor's assistant who was helping and he noticed, he said, I'm looking at through your work 
And he said, you have a better understanding than most of the students who are acing this class right now. But I'm noticing that you're making some really interesting mistakes. And um, they're not typical. A lot of it's right and left type of things. And he said, um, would you mind if I go and I, I make a deal with the professor? And uh, see if I can get you unlimited time on your test and see if that makes a difference. And uh, so I did, and she came back and she said, you can't get any higher than a B if you do this, but um, you know, sure, we'll let you do this. And I aced every single test from that point on. Um, and I found that that one statistics class was really what set me up for my whole career path going forward in state government. Had I not taken that one statistics class, um, I never would have gotten my first job with the state of Washington. So, so there's um, so many things, I want to pause there for a second, because there's so many things there in your story that I think a lot of us can relate to. One is just getting labeled from an early age that you're bad at math, right? And like how much work it is to overcome that. And I'm so happy you shared the story of you know, having a teacher and a professor who was able to say, hey, I think your brain works a little bit differently, right? And you may want to look into this because it's amazing how how much opportunity there is when we have somebody who guides us in the state to say, I don't see this as a disadvantage, but more like you're looking, you, you played it perfectly, right? You played the music score perfectly. You just are doing it differently than others. And how that allowed you then to one, find new ways of taking tests and getting over this fear of math, which I think a lot of us can relate to. We probably don't even know when the early onset <laughs> label started. Um, but more importantly, we just love to hear, you know, like since then, and you've excelled at the statistics class, you've been able to now work in data. Like you mentioned that you found your brain was actually wired for data. Like what did, you know, finding out you have mere reversal dyslexia and getting the right support and removing those labels of not being good at math. What has that allowed you to realize about your brain being wired with data? Like, what does that mean? Yeah. So I think, you know, as I really reflect on what I went through and also what I've been able to do in my career, I realize it's a superpower. Um, you know, it's, it's just a different way of thinking through things. It's a different way of um, asking questions. And uh, sometimes I find that um, I do ask the right questions, which unlock uh, other possibilities in, in the analysis and have led to great success. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that uh, when we have um, somebody who tells us you can't do math or you can't do statistics or it's too hard, um, I would say, you know, it's it might be just a, a matter of learning something a little bit differently um, that actually fits better with, with your learning style or with your the way your brain works. Um, I know that I, I later had another statistics class um, for law enforcement when I was doing crime analysis. And the um, individual who came in and taught it, he taught it in like one day, what I think the statistics class took um, maybe 
three months to teach and I got it and I was like oh <laughs> you know if they would have taught it this way it would have made so much sense and sometimes it's also being able to connect it with the real world um, because uh, if you remember those old story problems that they used to put in the math books um, you know how many oranges does so-and-so need um, you know to um, make his delivery. And it's like, I don't care about his delivery. <laughs> you know, I want to, uh, you know, make some real difference in the world. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's just a little shift in perspective there. So today you are making a real difference in the world through data and have worked in public service for some time now. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your work in data and public service and how you've been able to create positive change and why you're so passionate about this area. Sure. Um, so I mentioned I got my first job with the state. Um, I've worked in several different state agencies since. So I started out um, doing child abuse research, which is um, a horrible um, subject matter, but it really taught me a lot about the fact that the data that you're dealing with represents real life people. And, um, you know, data is sacred. There is a certain sacred quality to that information that when you are doing that sort of analysis, you have, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just very fragile um, to, um, to look at producing outcomes, to um, look at uh, applying your own lens to it to try to help interpret it and then to display it in a way that is going to be impactful to those who, tr who are trying to um, make decisions on policy and um, and laws and so on. So I started out in that field and then from there um, <laughs> into the um, traffic fatality um, work and I, I took my second job at Traffic Safety Commission and everyone had asked, well, you know, how could you move to traffic fatality data? And I said, well, you know, it was a little bit easier for me in a lot of ways than, than the child abuse research, which was, um, you know, I will, will admit it was very difficult work. Um, with the traffic fatality, there was really a emphasis on using that data to save lives. So we were looking for ways to transform the behavior to shift the behavior in in ways that uh, really drove those collisions down. And during that time, I had the, um, the privilege to assist in the passing of the state seatbelt law. We also, um, you know, stood up a lot of different um, successful campaigns uh, that reduced collisions on the roadways. And I did a lot of work during that time at the federal level as well, um, helping to influence um, the design of systems and uh, the campaigns at that level. Um, so that was an exciting time. From there, I went to the Washington State Patrol and, you know, I really embraced that mission for saving lives. Um, you know, after I had handled about I think it was over 4,000 traffic fatality cases. Um, I really had a heart for the mission. I didn't want this to, to be happening to anybody else. And if there was a way for us to um, 
you know, based on what we knew from the data to really um, create an impact, I was all in. Um, that really became my mission at that point. And so Washington State Patrol brought me over. And from there, I became involved in um, helping them with the data for driving the, um, the law enforcement campaign. So DUI, um, driving DUI deaths down especially, and using GIS, so geospatial technology, to really look at, are we sending the troopers out to work in the areas where the uh, fatal collisions are happening, where the drunk driving is happening, or where our 911 calls are calling the drunk, you know, the people in. And when we first did that analysis, that very beginning analysis, we found that no, people were not working in the right locations all the time, and we could do better. So um, that was a first look at how um, GIS, geospatial technology, could be used to create a different um, type of analysis for um, solving problems. Um, so from there, then I took a brief jaunt to Microsoft, where I worked for Pinkerton as an investigative analyst and handled threats to um, Microsoft globally. So I got involved more in the crime analysis side of things and uh, dabbled a bit and using uh, AI, and that was very early, um, used AI to solve a number of crimes um, in bulk, which was fun. Um, and then uh, I, I really felt a passion to come back to public service. So I did come back and I worked for the administrative office of the courts, working with court data for about 10 years. Um, in the data quality area. And uh, currently I am with the Washington State Healthcare Authority as a um, deputy director in the data unit and just enjoying every moment of it. Everything comes full circle. I'm finding that all of these little pieces that I've been um, working with along the way, I still have some sort of connection to them. And, uh, you know, data is data is data. There's, there's a certain pattern when you've started working with one type of data, um, you start to see that, oh, I can actually do the same type of analysis or similar analysis with a different type of data. Um, and you do see, um, yeah, different opportunities between disciplines. So it's quite exciting. Now, I love what you share because Data is the common thread through all of this, but just then it opens up the opportunity of areas that you can work on and problems you can solve. I mean, from child ab abuse to traffic fatalities, to crime analysis, to court data, to healthcare data. I mean, that's just your own individual career of the problems that you worked on, the different sectors and industries, all because of your common skill set of data and statistics and math and critical thinking. And so I loved what you said that data is sacred. I've never heard that said before and was like, oh, I have to double click into that and learn more. Because one of the things I think with data is it's about people usually, especially when you talk about child abuse and, and health and, and crime. So can you share a little bit more of, you know, one, why you think data is sacred but more importantly, 
if it is, how should we be moving forward in our analysis and our projects with that in mind? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that I've observed throughout my journey has been that sometimes when we look at data, um, we work with it to produce a study and that's the end result. Or maybe the evaluation is about, well, how good was our policy? But really, when I say data is sacred, it means truly connecting to the root cause, truly connecting to what that data means in real life and understanding where did it come from? Who are the faces behind that data? If that data has to do with people, um, if that data has to do with, um, you know, other things, um, you know, how is that data generated? Understanding how it's collected can really tell you a lot. And I think that too often people who get a data set just trust that it's okay. And uh, same thing in, in technology, you know, we move data from point A to point B without any thought uh, about what is the quality of that. But reality, especially when you're working in the public space, is that if you're moving data from point A to point B and you accidentally do something to that data, somebody's life in the end could be negatively impacted if that data goes downstream to a different agency and now it's being used to um, you know, populate your, your driver's license data, for example, or it's going on a court record or it's um, going on a law enforcement record or so on. So um, the importance of understanding where that data goes is huge, but also, um, yeah, how it's collected. And when I say sacred, when I was working the traffic fatalities, um, I had to get into those cases in great detail. And, you know, each and every one of those stories just um, touched my heart in such a deep way. And my way of giving back, um, you know, it was hard enough to, to look at that and to remember those who had lost family members, but to realize that I had a chance to make a difference, to take that information and to transform it into knowledge that could then go forward to try to prevent that from happening again. That was where I found that sacred spot because um, without that, I don't know if I could have done it as, as long as I did. You know, it's very easy to get, um, I would say depressed in that line of work or to, to feel the despair, the weight of that. Um, but that really became my mission. And uh, now I see it everywhere. You know, it's like the big question is when you're running those numbers, how are you truly impacting what you want to impact? Or do you understand where that that is coming from? Do you, do you understand that there are faces oftentimes behind that data? Um, so I think that in this field, we require a certain reverence for that information. Um, and it's not enough just to, just to say, oh, yeah, there's a bunch of numbers here or a bunch of codes. And um, cool, I can you know, create a nice little table with this or a, a pie chart. It's like, yeah, but what does this truly mean? And if you want to make a difference, um, I would say understand how it's collected. What is the quality of that information? Do you have everything? That's another big one. Uh, because a lot of folks 
um, they assume that they have everything, but if you don't have everything, you may not get your story right when you do the analysis. Um, also, what is the bottom line impact you're trying to understand? Um, you know, it might be more than, you know, in my case, uh, did your crashes go down? Somebody might have come to me and asked me that question. But a different way of phrasing that is, were lives saved? And, you know, where's that bigger story? So finding the energy in that is huge. And then educating those that have the power to make a difference, um, who are, I refer to them as the boots on the ground. Um, you know, it's not enough to do research studies that go unread. That information needs to get somewhere for it to be actionable. And I believe it's also our duty to, um, to work with those people, to empower them, and um, to help them uh, to utilize the data to show success or um, to pinpoint word pivot. Um, and as, as you teach them, they do start to learn to the point where you don't have to hold their hand anymore. They know they want the data. They're hungry for the data. They're going to go out and they're going to find those drunk drivers and, um, you know, work on, on that mission of saving lives. Um, so celebrating the wins with the data is huge. Um, and then, yeah, always considering that business perspective in the analysis because um, the boots on the ground, they see what's really going on in the real world. And a classic example, I'll just say really quick, classic example was um, we at one time used to run numbers for the whole state. There was this uh, analysis that was done uh, that pinpointed drunk driving. And we said, oh, well, drunk driving usually happens at 3 a.m. And a lot of the um, money that was used to fund emphasis patrols and different kinds of activities were really targeting that hour and the, the um, details off of that. But when we were able to get GIS and start looking at that data through time and space and really dissect the, the time, we found that, oh, some of these crashes in these different areas were not happening at 3 a.m. In fact, all of that information was being skewed to the Seattle area, which, you know, something like 30 some percent of the state is all in Seattle. And I remember talking to one of the troopers and he said, oh yeah, I can tell you it's all recreational drinking. You know, they come uh, at noon and they have their picnic and then yeah, they, they leave the area and they crash. And so we realized that, hey, this funding, if there's a requirement that you have to use it at 3 a.m., it's not gonna help this area at all. We needed to pivot. So the state did start to, um, to shift the way that they um, gave out you know, funding for, for that kind of um, enforcement. So that was exciting. But that just shows, yeah, he knew. <laughs> so ask, ask your people. Yeah, so what I hear you saying is like, it's really about taking a conscientious approach to our analysis and really like a purpose-driven approach. And I can't help but think is that we see a lot of burnout today, you know, in work, but I see how excited and engaged you are by having that purpose-driven insight and saying, yeah, when I get this data set, I really take the time to pause and think about what is this end goal that I'm trying to change and 
would you be willing to say that this would help us fight some of the burnout that we may face in the work we're doing or continue to be tenacious in the work if we take a little bit more of a conscientious and purpose-driven approach to our analysis? Absolutely. I think finding that bigger mission, your bigger why, and anchoring to that is so empowering. Um, I know that um, years ago when I was doing the traffic um, fatality work, um, I did a lot of work with um, U.S. Department of Transportation and NHTSA, and we actually ended up changing, um, you know, the slogan uh, to saving lives because uh, everybody woke up to the fact that, wow, what we're doing, even though it feels mundane, it really is important work. And, uh, you know, I think everybody was able to take away a sense of contribution and to be proud of the work they did. And some of it was, I mean, very, very dirty work, I, I will say, very difficult work. But just reframing it, um, yeah, I, I think uh, reframing whatever you're, you're called to do is, is very empowering. So shifting gears a little bit, I, today you are expanding from the world of traditional analysis and, and been diving into the blockchain and metaverse. And I know you recently completed a blockchain certification and are working on a few more projects. What inspired you to your interest in this field? And, you know, coming from a data background, what similarities have you seen between the two worlds in this space? Yeah, so blockchain, I would say, has been new to me since I maybe spring of this year, because um, I had heard a little bit of it before. But, you know, everybody, when you hear blockchain, you think of crypto, cryptocurrency. It's like, ah, I'm not ready to go down that road. And um, when I heard that blockchain was a data structure and could be used for other things, I really got curious and I was like, okay, I need to know a little bit more. So I started, um, you know, doing a bit of research. I also joined 101 Blockchains, um, which was um, helpful to me in just understanding things. And I saw a presentation that they did on how um, blockchain was actually being used for healthcare in um, Europe. And I was like, oh, this is different. You know, that's not crypto. They're not even bringing crypto into this. This is um, uh, very fascinating. So I realized that um, the role of tokens. So I already knew a lot of this data structure in its um, primary state. So pre-evolutionary to the blockchain uh, to understand what does a token do? And... Again, a lot of people associate tokens with crypto, but when you remove the crypto and you think of, oh, what does a token do in a database? It's so much easier to understand. And looking at, um, you know, most of our databases today are centralized. Uh, you know, that's kind of what we've been working on, but blockchain really moves you to a decentralized model. And with the token, there's just another layer that's kind of added into that structure that enables that all to happen. That's the very simple <laughs> version. I'm not going to try to explain all the logistics there, but 
um, you know, it can be used for so much more than just uh, crypto. It can be used for validating trust and peer-to-peer transactions. And I really believe that um, this is going to require new data governance models going forward. We're going to have to just rethink about how we share data. And, you know, when somebody has access or permissions to data, what does that mean? How do we uh, reinforce that trust? Um, It's going to open up a whole new world of discussions. And, you know, here in the U.S., we're not ready I would say to jump into the healthcare blockchain, so to speak, we would have to do quite a bit of work there, but it was fascinating to see this being used for other purposes. Um, additionally, you can use it for values. Um, you know, in, instead of thinking about currency traveling, you could think about collecting a value or, or collecting anything you could apply, um, some sort of a, um, uh, of value to to that as it's moving through. So, yeah, I was just fascinated by it, and um, it blew my mind. Um, and I think it's something that is coming for the future in so many ways. And if we're prepared to to learn it, if we're prepared to pivot, um, we'll be positioned to be ready for it when it fully arrives. So I know one of the things you're passionate about in this space is getting more women involved. Um, Why do you think it's so important for women to be involved with emerging technologies? And are there any projects that you're working on right now to get more women involved as well? Yeah. So um, as far as women in, I would say, blockchain or the metaverse, first of all, if you look at the percentage, and you can probably... um, quote these statistics better than I off the top of your head, but of women in tech and uh, women um, in data. What, what is the percentage again of men, uh, men versus women? So in data and analytics, it's about 25% women. And then it's a little less if you go just data science, 15, AI is roughly around 10. Um, so you tend to see a trend of, you know, the more new a technology is, the less women are involved, right? So tech overall has a higher percentage, um, but it just kind of spans down in terms of how new the technology is and the percentage that women are involved. Yeah, so so that was one of the things that, um, you know, I'm still processing because I've been living in this space for the last, I, I'd say, you know, 24 years dealing with data and to discover that, yeah, there's not that many of us doing this sort of work out there. So that was the first thing. But, um, you know, as it pertains to especially the metaverse, the metaverse um, is going to require, I believe, a whole um, foundation of values. And we're going to be looking at the difference between the real world and the metaverse at some point. We've had a, a very clear separation up, up into this point with like video games and this and that. But as we start really blending those two, I think there's a bigger question that comes about. And that is, um, you know, if we have certain values that are being enforced in the metaverse. So I like to use the example of flaming ping pong balls. Uh, maybe you can play a game that feels real. You've got your virtual reality goggles on or whatever. And, you know, if, if the loser gets hit by the 
ping pong, the flaming ping pong ball, they might just, you know, combust. <laughs> they might go poof. Well, my question is, what does that do in the sense of the brain? How does that actually uh, rewire people's brains for how they show up in the real world? And I realized, wow, we have a real opportunity here to be enhancing both. What if we created a metaverse that um, really um, it spilled over into the real world in a very positive way? You know, it actually enhanced our capabilities. It, it enhanced the way that we work together and the way that, um, you know, even our brains are wired. And in order to do that, you know, we, I, I think um, the impact that women have and also um, some of the things that women tend to be concerned about, and I don't want to stereotype that all women are this way or all men are this way, but in general, um, there are some things that we tend to bring to the table that I think are a little bit different. And if you only have one um, gender that is driving all of this, you may be missing out on other things um, that could really enhance this. So the importance of getting women in there, I think is huge. Uh, you know, we think about education for, for kids. We think about how do our families operate? We think about how do we socialize? All of those pieces are so important. Um, and, and also the role of um, artificial intelligence. You know, how are those questions being asked? And is there bias that's actually being introduced that could make um, things more difficult for people? So, um, so that's what stands out to me. Um, and um, yeah, <laughs> I think I've said No, I, 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 I think you summarized it really well and it provided some interesting and thought provoking things for us to start to think about of like, not only what are the challenges as we move forward in this space, but all, also what are the opportunities, right? And how do we use this new technology for good? And how do we continue to build on the skill sets and base knowledge that we as data professionals already have? So thank you for continuing to be an inspiration to all of us and forging a new path and providing a conscious awareness to how we move forward into these new spaces. I could continue to talk to you about this subject all day long, but I want to make sure that we have some time for the rapid fire questions. So if you're ready, we can kick off some rapid fire questions. Sure. Let's go for it. All right. What song do you currently have on repeat? Well, it, it's kind of a funny one because, um, so I like to wake up to music. So in the morning and one of my alarms is, um, it's a beautiful morning by the rascals and I'm a happy morning person. This song just up, uplifts me and it sets the stage for the whole day. It's sunshiny and it makes me want to go outside. That's <laughs> part of the lyrics in the song. And, um, yeah, I, I'd say my dog likes it too. She, uh, <laughs> she's like, yeah, let's go outside. It so. sounds like the perfect way to wake up. Uh, yeah. All right. Favorite place you've traveled? Um, my favorite place I've traveled is actually Italy. And um, there's just so much to talk about there. Um, but one of my inspirations is Leonardo da Vinci. He was just fascinating to me and um, all the different things that he dabbled in. And when you talk about um, how he worked with the senses, 
and all five senses, smell, touch, taste, all of that. When I was in Italy, I really felt like I got a taste of that, you know, just being able to smell the, the warm herbs in the air and, you know, to um, taste the, the local wine and, and everything. Um, yeah, just amazing. And so I would say Italy is very dear to my heart. Happiness is? I, I don't know. I just think happiness is. When I think of that, um, there's so many things to be happy about. And um, I see it more as a state of mind. It's it's a state of being. And it's a way of going through life. Um, you know, you could choose to, to go through life in other ways. Um, but, yeah, I, I just say happiness is. In the next five years, I hope to. In the next five years, I hope to really um, contribute on a global scale. Um, something that that makes a difference in the world. So I feel like in my journey, I have been able to create um, success at the local level and the state level and at the federal level. But now I'm ready to really share what I have and go bigger. And so that's my hope. And you know, what does that look like? I'm not sure yet. It's still unfolding, but um, I have a lot of different friends, you know, around the world who I talk with regularly, and it's just so beautiful to bring all of these ideas together, and we're at a point in history where we have that ability. So, yeah, I would say, you know, going global is really um, what I hope to do. I'm excited to see it happen. And last question to me, curiosity is? Um, curiosity is an essential part, I would say, of um, working with data to drive real change in the world. Because without curiosity, you're just going through the motions. You know, is it good enough to just repeat a study, the same study that you've been doing for you know, <laughs> the last 20 years and to do it in the same way or get curious about it, ask some new questions, look at things a little differently and see if that still is the right approach to take. Um, I think with curiosity and the right questions, we can open up so much innovation and new ideas and new possibilities. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a pleasure and an inspiration. If people want to learn more and stay connected to you, what's the best way for them to do that? I would say to find me on LinkedIn, um, Marcia Drake. And um, yeah, just send me a request. Wonderful. Well, we'll add your um, LinkedIn to the show notes. Again, thank you for coming on the show and I can't wait to see you have the global impact that you want to have in the next five years. Thank you so much, Sadie. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to all of our listeners. We always appreciate you tuning in and supporting. Remember to stay curious and keep learning and we will catch you next time. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Data Bytes podcast. 
If you're looking for more resources to further your data career or find your tribe, we encourage you to become a member at womenindata.org. See you on the other side.